topic of relics that we have these wonderful relics and the blessings of them it's good for us to think about ourselves as relics even if we're young potential relics and what kind of treasures are we developing within us what kind of crystals are we growing something crystalline something that is beautiful to know we're not speaking about beautiful in the sense of beautiful to look at. It's not a physical beauty, obviously, but it's an inner radiance. This is a good thing for us to develop, and we're cultivating that. In the Zen tradition, there is a saying, when the mind is not troubled, by unnecessary things, no season is too much. When the mind is not troubled by unnecessary things, well, what does it mean to be troubled? We can examine what is it that agitates us? What is it that takes away the feeling of beautiful, that life is beautiful, that we feel well, that we feel peaceful? that we are not troubled. What would take away that feeling? If there's anger, if any of the hindrances are present, if we're greedy for certain experiences or money or possessions, relationships, or quality of relationship, and it's not happening. If there's danger, if there's disappointment, there's so many things that come up in the mind that rob us of that feeling, all is well, all is well. And then whatever season it is, whether it's in winter, a lot of people don't feel so well in winter, not just because of the cold, but because it's slippery outside, or we can't travel where we want to go. We can call COVID a long-term winter because we're stuck. We're told to be in place. Well, now we, we've had more movement and the result is becoming worrisome. And these are the things that rob us of our peace. So even in the best season, perhaps the maybe best is totally relative, of course. What is the best season? No season is too much when the mind is not troubled by unnecessary things. So we 
have to define our terms here, unnecessary means, what, what do we really need to be happy? We all have different standards of what we need to be happy. For the monastic standard, we have four requisites, four material requisites. We have food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. Medicines for time of illness. And we have allowable medicines, which we can have when we're hungry, when we're truly hungry, not emotionally hungry. So those are the four requisites. And what are the requisites for the mind? The requisites for the mind that will keep it from getting into trouble. If we think about the hindrances that prevent us from being fully present with things just exactly as they are, in the purest sense of being present, that would be a mind that is freed of greed, being far from the desire for sense pleasure. And because we have the vehicle of the body with its five sense doors in the mind, we're always hungering for some kind of experience beyond the normal daily living and daily survival experience. We want more than that. So not wanting, craving is really at the root, but craving manifests itself in different ways. So wanting some excitement or some new experience at the level of sense pleasure. And there are many kinds of sense pleasure. Some of them are very refined and some of them are more coarse. Then another troubling aspect of the experience the mind has is when it's agitated because of something painful, when things are unpleasant, and then ill will manifests. Sometimes even the way a person looks at us can be so upsetting. Or a text, you get a text from someone a very close friend of the Hermitage just got a, a letter that somebody he had worked for was being sued and he was going to appear in the suit as a third party. Imagine if someone were to sue you. What a horrible thing for something you didn't do. You haven't done anything. You just, you, you were building something and they fell where your work was happening. The world is like this now. This is how much the unseasoned mind, the untrained mind, can be disturbed by unwholesomeness, by ill will, to the point of lashing out and attacking other people. It's not killing, but it's so harmful. There are more subtle ways that we harm ourselves and each other from reckless driving to abusive speech, abusive language, even young kids. I've heard young kids on the train or in the bus using horrible language. And somehow in the heart area and the solar plexus, 
to hear that kind of language is very grating. Just being restless is a form of ill will and a mental disturbance. We're so anxious, we just don't know how to keep our energy still. This is why meditation is so helpful. Even if we can't overcome our anger or our grief, at least we can sit with it and observe it. Even if we can't still our restlessness, at least we can be with it quietly and try to address it rather than just be driven by it. And the same is true with tiredness or dullness in the mind. Dullness can be a source of agitation for us, of energy loss. We can't bring enough motivation, enough uplift that will make us feel better and feel well, even too tired to meditate. How many of us feel too tired to meditate? What is that tiredness, really, that prevents us from reaching for the very medicine which could heal us from our exhaustion? Because our exhaustion is not just a physical one, is it? It's that the mind is exhausted. And that's where we have to dig and look and examine and touch and nourish somehow. Bring some grace in there, some beauty in there, shine a light in there so that we can move away from the dark spaces. And of course, the doubt is a very big hindrance, which keeps us on the fence, unable to decide, unable to be sure, insecure worried. It's also a kind of restlessness. All of those hindrances feature in doubt. Doubt can make us very angry and judgmental. And doubt can make us greedy too. We want to spread our doubt to other people. It's like we want other people to suffer the way we're suffering. It's a very misguided state of mind. And if we had good role models, better role models around us, then maybe we'd be able to overcome our doubt more quickly. I know as a young nun, I was very fortunate to meet inspiring and uplifting teachers who by their very presence gave me insight into what was possible for a human being. And I never doubted that this practice works because I met people like that. Others who I've met along the way who have been very doubting about the possibility of changing the way they live their life. Full of doubt. That's not going to do any good. And when I would try to talk about the first noble truth, which is the truth of suffering, the immediate response would be, I don't suffer. I don't have any suffering. If people aren't receptive, it's better not to try to convince. Doubt is very tricky and deceitful. It's so undermining. When we have doubt, 
it's hard to trust, then more doubt would arise. It's like choosing solar energy over propane, if you're an environmentalist. But we're talking about the ecology of the mind. What would be the solar choice in the ecology of the mind? It would be to practice generosity. It would be to practice pacifying a mind that is full of goodwill, full of love, unconditional love. It would be developing a mind that trusts, that is very trusting and not worried, not anxious, not restless, but trusting in our own goodness and trusting the path, trusting our ability to bring this teaching to life here and now. We can't change what other people do, but we can change what we do. And if we subtract enough greed, enough hatred, and enough delusion from our own lives, we have improved the field of practice for the whole world. So when I see a monarch, I cheer. That monarch flew all the way from Mexico to Canada. How on earth? And its flight is affecting me in this garden here in autumn. We had very few this year. But I celebrate the arrival of the monarchs because they have such a magnificent teaching to offer us. That our practice of mindfulness, of generosity, of stilling and calming the citta, the heart, of practicing goodwill instead of ill will, of practicing kindness unilaterally, even to those who are unkind to us, forgiveness, a higher generosity, samadhi, an even higher generosity, and insight, panya, the discernment of the mind, the development of wisdom. This is the greatest generosity that we can offer. Then we are beating our wings towards Nibbana, towards the extinction of ignorance within us. And that will have profound effects. Look, the Buddha was able to completely liberate his heart, his mind, two and a half, more than two and a half millennia ago, and people are still able to practice that now because of his practice. His practice. His putting one foot in front of another and his sitting still with all that arose in his mind moment by moment, year after year, until he was fully enlightened, lifetime after lifetime, because it was a culmination of lifetimes. How do you add up the moral culmination of lifetimes? How do you add that up? We can't add that up in human terms. We can't add that up cognitively. We cannot add that up conceptually because we are spiritual beings moral beings 
and our life depends on karmic laws, which are moral laws. So the material movement of the world doesn't produce any evidence and doesn't help us with our doubt. We have to go inwardly to the galaxy within us and study there what happens invisibly, indiscernibly, in terms of the, the theories or the, the statistics that are used by rationalists to measure what works and what doesn't work. This practice does work. This practice will unhinder us and will free us so that our minds are not full of all those unnecessary things that trouble us, such as the five hindrances. These are everyday obstacles. They're not esoteric. And they keep the mind chained to a field of unwholesomeness rather than liberating the mind into a field of that which is pure and sustaining. Every day we can tell when we're veering off the path. We can tell every moment when we've slightly lost the plot. We can tell. It's measured in the heart. That measurement doesn't register on any kind of scale that is computer controlled. But we can compute it. We can register it in the heart. So this is what we have to register. And this is how we can develop to a state where no season is too much. And no trouble is insurmountable. Even COVID. What does COVID stand for? COVID stands for compassion. C-O, we have to start with compassion. And COVID is teaching us compassion at a level we haven't had to ever use unless we were soaked in the dumb. We're almost being brought to our knees by this level of compassion, and it's so good. Even the earth, the elements are demanding that we get on our knees and practice this level of compassion to the earth elements and to our mind element so that together we can realize the Nibbana element. C-O for compassion. V for virtue. That compassion will never fly like our little friend, the monarch. It will never fly without virtue. It's an essential ingredient. It is the essential worker. These essential workers have, the, through the goodness of their hearts, have stood on the front lines of this pandemic and taken great risks, and many of them have died on their feet, literally, in the surgeries, in the clinics, in the shops that had to stay open to sell food to hungry folk, and on and on and on. Virtue, the heart that practices kindness, that cannot harm any living thing, 
is the virtuous being. Virtue is our victory over cruelty. It's our victory over ignorance. It's our victory over harm. Harm to ourselves, harm to anyone else. Harm to a wasp. We had a couple of friends helping to wash the temple pillars, and one of them told me he got bit by a wasp. And I said, did it hurt? He said, no. Well, a little, you know, but it didn't mean to hurt him. It's not the way we humans, when we bite, we can really hurt other people. With our speech, with our two lips, we can cut people up into pieces. It's unthinkable. We can hurt ourselves with our speech, our internal voices, our internal choir that says, I'm no good. I'm hopeless. We're not. And we must silence those voices and work through the pure mind, which says, yes, I'm doing the very best I can. And I'm going to stay with what's happening and practice kindness to myself. And self-compassion or non-self-compassion. Just pure compassion. The word self being used conventionally because there's no one that can really be harmed. And that's the beauty of it. If we didn't so believe in this construct of a self, we would realize that no one can harm us. Even if they kill the body, they cannot kill the being, the awareness, the spirit, because there will be another life. And if we harm no one, then we can realize a, a higher state or a state, a human state, where we can practice more easily towards complete freedom from this whole cycle of existence, samsara, all the realms, any realm. So that's C-O-V. And then what is the I? It stands for insight. The ability to see through things, to know things for what they really are, to see them in the light of impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. So that's insight with three eyes that follow. This is a very great dimension of understanding. To be able to see everything that arises that is conditional, that would even be this temple. It's just conditional. Every tree in this forest, it's conditional. Every one of us sitting here, we are conditional. We're on our way to be relics. And if we complete the path, we might be on someone's shrine someday. <laughs> Who knows? But to see things as impermanent, imperfect, if they're imperfect, of course, we don't like it. Because we're so perfect. <laughs> but we're not. The mind is so untrained. And the ignorance is hovering. The clouds of ignorance are everywhere. But to be able to see the imperfection of worldly things, worldly experience, and to know where perfection really lies, and then to cultivate it, 
develop it. And then to see the impersonality. It's impersonal. There is no one there. It's empty. Whatever we think we are, whoever we think we are, we're not seeing through to the truth of things. We are not this person that we believe in. So what are we? It's just the knowing mind. This moment-by-moment moment knowing of phenomena as they arise. And that in itself will lead us to understand the real nature of the mind. Basically to penetrate through to the emptiness of all phenomena, everything. And then the mind, there is no mind, it's nothing solid, it's just the ability to know. It's a faculty. It's the wisdom faculty. And this is where the D comes in, COVID. Now D stands for death. But what death are we talking about? We're talking about the death of ignorance, the death of blindness, the death of unkindness. And that kind of death is the death of fear, the death of anger, the death of greed, and the death of delusion. All of that, which leads us to the highest form of discernment. In fact, we arrive at that discernment, that knowledge, through wisdom. So it's a D for death and it's a D for discernment. This is the meaning of COVID. COVID is the great teacher. It's an instrument. It's almost a strategy of the universe to wake all of us up, finally. Wake up, mankind, humankind. Wake up before the great destruction. We have a chance. And we must not let our minds be caught up with all these unnecessary troubles. Believing in the doubt, believing in our anger, believing in our disappointment, believing in our grief. We're all just here for a moment and gone. We're here for a brief sojourn on this planet. And we don't have time to waste. So D also stands for Dhamma. We need to find this Dhamma and let ourselves soak in it day by day so that we can get through the obstacles that life brings us whatever they might be, obstacles of mind, obstacles in our survival, so that we die before we die. That we die to the anger, the fear, the greed, the delusion. That we can live this life as fully awake human beings. And see, look at, look at the world, see the mess. What is the result of following worldly ways? It's this mess. And we're all caught in the matrix of it. As long as our minds are following this trajectory, at least we will not be really caught. No matter what happens, even if 
there were tanks from the US Army lined up along the Canadian border shooting at us, we would not fear. Because if we practice according to the COVID teaching, we would be fully awake and our mission on this planet would be complete. But they would have to come back over and over again to suffer in this kind of a realm. Or worse. But we wish that all beings wake up. We wish that there be disarmament. That the world could somehow come to peace. And to generosity. And to compassion. And to wise leadership. And on and on and on. We wish it. But we cannot change the fabric of samsara, the world of the human realm, this realm, is one of suffering and non-suffering. And we can stand on our heads and do somersaults. We will not be able to change that. But we can free our own hearts from suffering once and for all. And we can offer that as a relic, as a jewel, as a treasure for other people to perhaps see it's possible. Let's go this way. Then at least there would be more opportunity for the many, many beings in this world who hunger for the truth, who search for the Dhamma, and they find it. But still they are hindered by the events in the world. Let us live in a way where no season is too much for us. And may we spread that understanding and that compassion throughout our lives to every being we know and beyond. <laughs>